and welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton. And I'm Peter Kenny. Today we're delving into the sometimes murky and mysterious world of poetry publishing. Robin talks to poet and academic J.T. Welsh about the business of poetry, how publishing works and all that mysterious stuff. And Peter and I are going to have a chat about some of the issues, reminding ourselves that publishing needn't be the ultimate goal for a poet. And we talk a bit about our own adventure with Telltale Press, don't we? Yeah, that's when we try to seize the means of poetry production and create a revolution in poetry. Well, uh, we didn't just try. I think we did it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so before we get our hands dirty talking business, um, Peter, do you think we should start with a poem or two? Well, yes. Here's one I prepared earlier. Uh-huh. It's by... <laughs> and, uh, this is Guillaume Apollinaire. I always select the names of French people I could I struggle to pres- <laughs> struggle to pronounce. He was the first person that actually coined the term surrealism which was is pretty cool and this this poem has got a sort of disturbing dreamlike clarity and it kind of embodies for me that surrealism it's also dedicated to uh, this is another name I always struggle with to Chirico who's that strange painter of empty blasted landscapes and sort of empty squares with people running across them and so on I'll just read the poem I think ocean of earth I built a house in the middle of the ocean. Its windows are rivers which flow out of my eyes. Octopus stir all around its walls. Listen to the triple beat of their hearts and their beaks which tap on the window panes. Humid house. Burning house. Rapid season. Season which sings. Airplanes drop eggs. Watch out for the anchor. Watch out for the ink which they squirt. It's a good thing you came from the sky. The honeysuckle of the sky climbs up. The earthly octopus throb. And then we are closer and closer to being our own gravediggers. Pale octopus of chalky waves. Oh, octopus with pale beaks around the house, there is this ocean which you know and which is never still. Goodness. I see what you mean about the surrealist (laughs) angle. There's something about the word octopus I I can't take seriously in a poem, which is is terrible (laughs) because they're fabulous creatures, aren't they? Very intelligent and deep. I like this this idea of just this kind of unsubtle metaphor of these octopus in a house at the bottom of the ocean mm. and, and just that sort of precision of the triple beat of their hearts because um i read a whole book about octopuses a while ago and they have three hearts and so it's that kind of little precision for me it's a kind of hauntingly original image of insecurity of being beset by you know weirdness anxiety mm. octopuses mm. <laughs> something something without a human intelligence it's like one of those dreams that you can remember vividly and I often think about this poem about these the triple beat of these octopuses' hearts in this little house underwater, <laughs> looking up at the sky. Perhaps Lennon and McCartney read that poem before they wrote that the famous song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the octopuses come. <laughs> um, maybe this is a good time to hear Robin's interview with J.T. Welsh.
T. Welsh is a lecturer in English and Creative Industries at the University of York. He is the author of several books of poetry, and he co-edited with Agnes Lahosky an anthology, Wretched Strangers, Borders, Movement, Homes, published by Boiler House Press in 2018. In 2020, his monograph, The Selling and Self-Regulation of Contemporary Poetry, was published by Anthem Press. So, J.T. Welsh, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a bit different because you are a poet, but we're not going to be asking you about your work as a poet. Sorry about that. But That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's this book, The Selling and Self-Regulation of Contemporary Poetry, that really caught my eye because I think that's something a lot of a lot of us poets always want to know about. Tell us a bit about how you came to write this book. First of all, I think that sense of having these different hats is is very much part of it because I I am a poet, but I'm also uh, an academic and and I teach things to do with with publishing and, and kind of coming at it from a, from a critical kind of research side of things. But it's sort of self-serving as well, because I want to have my own personal feelings about these things, and I want to know about how they work. And really, I guess over the past 10 or 12 years or so, I guess I've, I've been you know, just noticing different kinds of things, um, like individually, different kinds of trends, um, different changes I've noticed, either with technologies or just the different ways that poets are working. And I'm just fascinated by that, really. And so just gradually, yeah, it was a very long period. It was, it was kind of, some of the chapters in the book are nearly 10 years old. Um, hopefully don't show their age too much, but it's trying to map over time how those changes have come about. And you talk a lot about the technology and reading it, actually, I realized how much had happened in the last 20 years. It all seems to have been, um, it feels like it's happened in no time. But when you talk about what was going on 20 years ago, suddenly that seems like a heck of a long time ago. Yeah. And partly, of course, yeah, okay, internet, um, self-publishing, people publishing online, etc. It's really made uh, some big changes. And yet I feel as if traditional poetry publishing is still sort of going on as normal or the same way. Is that, would you say that was true? Yeah, I agree. It feels sort of, on one hand, like, quite overwhelming, I guess, the sense of things changing so quickly in so many ways that you're trying to keep up. But I think you're right that in other ways, there's a kind of, it's not superficial, but there's a kind of surface level where there's still this story of like poetry connecting us with longer traditions and ways of thinking and being in the world. And we don't want to lose that. In some ways, yeah, this research for me is just trying to get my own bearings and then figuring out, you know, from that, how, what can we preserve? What do we want to preserve? And what might be good changes, possible new possibilities? I suppose. One of the obvious examples is Insta poetry. And I was interested to read your take on that. I was sort of hadn't really clocked at how the visual element, it sounds ridiculous at Instagram, it is visual, how the visual element is so much a part of it and the presentation of the work in these photographic montages with the backgrounds are often pictures of torn pieces of paper and typewriters and old school, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Linking poetry online with actually what it used to be like? I find it just completely fascinating. I mean, I know I know it's a difficult thing. For a lot of poets, there's a kind of, there's a knee-jerk sense that these, I don't know, these people, these insta-poets or whatever terms we use to kind of denigrate them, that this isn't serious poetry, this is just kind of playing to social media, uh, kind of influencer culture. But I think 
some of the things that they're doing, we are starting to see that trickle into poetry more generally, whether whether knowingly or kind of unconsciously. A lot of these poets, people like yeah, Rupi Kaur and others, are being published by different kinds of publishers who who had no experience publishing poetry, so they were making up as they go along as well. So it's you go into big bookshops now and you you just see loads of these books. They are selling and they they look different. You know, they're full of images, they're full of different colors and kinds of things. I think I think we'll just continue to see more and more of that. Did you say actually that the publisher who's brought out Rupi Kaur's books actually has a history of like um, comic strip type books? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Andrews McMeal uh, Publishing. Yeah, and they publish a lot of the big names, uh, Lang Leave and a, and a bunch of others. They do gift books, you know, they do books that look nice and you, you know, you give someone or it sits on in your loo or wherever. Um a long history of that with comics and stuff. So they have a different sensibility. And I I think the thing that happens is when you quote Rupi Kaur or someone out of context and you're just taking the words, it is slightly unfair. Whatever we think of the work, we that's not really how it was intended to be to be read. Uh-huh. Interesting. So, and I think also perhaps you referred at one point to visuals coming into more, shall we say, serious, is that the word? Poets, the fact that there have been books like Anne Carson's Knox, mm. Claudia Rankine's Citizen collections now, we're seeing more imagery, more photos, more uh, artifacts. So I suppose there's been like a feedback back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, cross-fertilization maybe in that sense. I think so. Partly for technological reasons, like the internet is just very visually oriented. I think that's why poetry works well online, because even even if it is just text, a poem looks like something visually that, you know, you can't really just post a novel. You can't tweet a, a screen um, shot of a novel um, in the same way. But also, this is a time where they're crossing the streams between different art forms. So lots of poets in the UK who have come through art school backgrounds, or, you know, in North America as well, people like Claudia Rankine, who are interested in video art and, and, and image collage and different things. And it's, you know, those things working together and with printing technologies, which I guess a lot of people don't think about, but it's much cheaper to print books in color with images and things than it used to be. It used to be very prohibitive. So yeah. And self-publishing, in fact, of course, is the same thing in that it's a lot cheaper to do now and and to do well. Mm. On the subject of poetry as content, I was also struck by, I think, was it Nicholas Carr, you gave an example that he gave an example of, if you think about people posting their poetry on the internet, on Facebook or whatever, or Instagram, it's a bit like the landowners after the American Civil War, you know, divvying up the land and giving people their little, their little plots, the sharecropping analogy. And that if you are a, you know, you're happy just to post your stuff on your Instagram site or whatever, mm. you are in an attention economy, whereas the owners of the platform are in a cash economy. And I, you can quite happily enjoy the, the social benefits of doing what you're doing without worrying about whether or not someone's selling adverts off the off the back of your content. I thought that was really interesting discussion. I mean, do you think people are really aware of that situation or are we just yeah. are we complicit in it? I think well, I I love that metaphor as well. I find it really striking because it's 
I think we're all aware of these things. Like, you know, at this point, we know the, the media is full of stories about all these these big tech companies not paying their taxes or doing different dodgy things. And we're all yeah. critical of them in lots of ways. At the same time, at the day-to-day level, posting stuff on these platforms, it doesn't feel like we're participating in that economic system in quite a direct way. It feels like we're, we're making decisions about the time and the effort that we put into it. And we you know, we're able to rationalize that time and effort and kind of say, well, I'm sort of investing this time in self-promotion or building my website or, or posting on social media. And I'm going, you know, the rewards of that will be invitations to do readings or maybe publications or different yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. But it's what we're doing there is is economic. It's just even if there's not money being passed around, we're, we're, we're thinking in those kinds of terms. And so that I think that metaphor of sharecropping reminds us to kind of look out for ourselves. And um, I mean, they used to always say yeah. that with poetry, if you're ever paying for it, you know, you want to make sure the money is flowing in the right direction, that it should be towards the writer. It's a similar kind of thing. You don't want people to be taken advantage of. It's just that it's not, it's not the same where you used to get, you know, a vanity publisher would kind of say, oh, for this amount of money, you can have your poetry. Book. Yeah, yeah. It's similar, but it's... It's in the background. Yeah. yeah. And you could say, well, does it matter? Actually, a lot of people say, well, actually, I don't really care about that because actually what I'm doing, I'm sharing, I'm enjoying, I have a community. That's kind of, that's it for me. Like you said, that's an alternative form of economy, I suppose. I think that is changing. I don't know if, if that's your sense as well as that five, 10 years ago, there was a lot of debate about self-promotion like on Twitter and whether that was tactless to kind of constantly be retweeting when you had good reviews. <laughs> we don't, we've kind of gotten over that. And Bragging. yeah, yeah. The humble brag and all the kind of shameless plug, people always use these terms. And Are we over that? In what sense? In what sense are we over it? I think it's been, uh, well, to use another buzzword, it's been kind of normalized, I think, all that, that sort of self-promotion. And <laughs> And that cuts both ways. You know, I think, I guess it can be a good thing because we can make our own decisions. We can rationalize without feeling like there's a stigma. In other ways, I think there are people, I certainly have students where they feel like that's just part of the job now. And if you want to be any kind of writer, you're going to have to learn how to do all this self-promotion. And that can be, that can exclude people. Yeah. Well, let's turn the attention on to prizes now if we can <laughs> Peter and I had a lovely chat over a few beers about prizes you know for and against but we were talking really about poetry competitions as opposed mm. to the, the big prizes for the collections mm. but you have a very interesting chapter in the book where you talk about prize culture mm. you, you give that example from um was it 2014 where Paxman was was on the yeah. board of judges for the forwards or something? And he made some comment like, poets are only talking to one another and it's all irrelevant, mm -hmm. basically. I think that's a bit of a paraphrase, I think. And But the fact that that was released kind of at the same time as the shortlist – like it had the it had the blessing of the organizers you you make the point that actually the creation of these so-called scandals is part of the commentary that goes around prizes which in turn is what gives them their value i'm interested to mm. have you explain that a bit more for us yeah i think a lot of things are going on here and i know it, sometimes it gets that question of should we just get rid of all prizes i don't think they're going anywhere so it's thinking about again how they're sort of changing because some of these prizes have been around a long time, but 
in this era of, I would describe it as participatory media, that it isn't just, you know, what are the newspapers saying, but what are we all saying and they're responding to and reporting. Things like scandals, they, I mean, that gets a lot of traction, right? Whether it is a storm in a teacup or whether it's a genuine debate, a comment like Paxman's or any other kinds of scandals, they go a long way for raising awareness of for the prize and they bring attention to it. And then everybody wants to know then who, who's going to win and whether that person deserved it. And maybe they'll buy more books. I think it will be hard to trace the exact stuff. My way I got my head around it in the book was, was thinking about it as in terms of like that participation and thinking about these kind of shares as a kind of pun of like the sharing that we do on social media, but that we're almost sort of like buying stock in these scandals when we weigh in with our own opinions and commentary. It, it is about community, but it's kind of, if you comment on something and then that gets retweeted and then then you know the guardian writes it up and they quote your tweet there's a lot of cultural capital going around in those conversations and you know i think it's only natural that we all want part of that yeah prizes are always they're always a real point um for that they help structure those conversations right yeah carry on criticizing the prizes because it helps yeah yeah that's i think Someone like Jeremy Paxman, he it's no skin off his nose, but but there have been some scandals, haven't there? That have been quite bruising, that have kind of been unpleasant to witness. And but I suppose what you're saying is that we live in a neoliberal society, as you've mentioned, as you yeah, point out, and therefore that is the name of the game, if you like. Is there always going to be competition as well as community and poetry? Yeah. People say, oh, well, you know, people point out all these arguments that go on in the poetry world. And then others will say, well, there's no more than any other world. It's only because it's poetry and outsiders think that we're all, we all love each other and there's no, you know, we should be above competition. But that's, is that ridiculous? That's the, that's the way when people kind of say, oh, it's not a horse race. We just don't need these things. And. <laughs> Some days I do feel like that, but I think that they they can be productive for these conversations. I mean, you look at things like questions about diversity in poetry. A shortlist is a very useful tool for that because it's very visible and a prize shortlist comes out and we can look at that and we can, we can see what kinds of people are included. We can all do the quick maths in our head and kind of see, you know, or people who just come up again and again and again. You know, you look at the past 10 years and the big prizes in the UK, that that's been a point where that conversation has moved things forward and the, and the lists are more inclusive in, in lots of different ways. You make the point also about uh, the, the love of the debut collection and yeah. a lot more debuts have won prizes, younger poets, whereas perhaps they were underrepresented, you know, in the 20th century in the prize list yeah. or whatever. So I guess that's another way of redressing the balance. It is. I think, I think, Debuts are tricky. And I, and I know, I think some of the conversations about age requirements on prizes have been, that's been a good conversation because it's helped us separate that assumption that a debut poet will always be in their early twenties and kind of, you know, just bursting onto the scene in this way. And that, I think that's been important. Uh, in the long run, it's hard to say whether this, the recent debuts win in so many prizes and a lot of publishers just putting out a lot more debuts than they did 10 years ago. Will they be able to support them over the, the longer career? I think it's a crucial question because I think there are people, I guess, who, however you describe them, sort of mid, mid-list, mid mid-career poets where they were once described as emerging and do they feel like they've emerged? If there are resources that are specifically for, for, for debut writers, that is important, but we, we can't forget those other people where it's 
suddenly you're not eligible for those specific debut prizes or funding anymore. And that's, that's, that's tough. We want people to develop. Yeah. But some might also say that people can emerge at any age. So there's the late emerges. Yeah. So I think maybe the way we talk about these things, we're getting a little more precise. I think some, one of, you know, one example of that would be like the, the new and the next generation lists where they, oh, yeah. the most recent one had people of lots of different ages. There's a question there of whether generation is the right word anymore, but it's, yeah, but that's yeah. good. I must make it sound like there's a lot of negativity. I'm sort of bringing up all these kind of negative things like competition and prizes, but there's a lot of positivity I, I took from this. And you talk about how you picked up on the book by Joe Bell and Jane Kamein, How to Be a Poet, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the kind of terminology they use in terms of uh, here's what you do and then you share with your community. And it's kind of more an inclusive, they have this kind of inclusive attitude and maybe that's a, a way forward. And also this word, Ecology comes up later. You discuss how that, that's been used by quite a few people to talk about the, the poetry world rather than the poetry business or whatever, the, the ecology that we're in. What do you think sitting behind that terminology? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Cause it comes up, it comes up everywhere. And there are sometimes when it's used, I don't know, in, by a government minister and it feels like it's a really cynical kind of metaphor. They're talking about some kind of ecology and, and they really mean economy. They really mean, you know, a business structure. I think when it comes to poetry, I think it's just like you said there, it feels like everybody will have their either positive or negative take on these changes. My own feeling is that we need to come to terms with them at the very least. I don't think it helps to kind of wish, oh, I wish it were, were back like it used to be, because that's not how the how these changes seem but I think books like the, a few different books, actually, that Nine Arches Press have have published now, they show this way of of thinking about craft alongside these other kinds of skills that poets are, you know, are expected to develop. And I think, you know, as I said, I think there's a balance there. I wouldn't, I really hate it when when students who are brilliant writers feel suddenly like there's this whole other thing, this business side of things that they need to to bone up on and all these skills and that that, that would put them off. But I think on the other hand, it's good then that we educate and we make these kinds of skills accessible. And so whether it's books like that or just having a conversation where we can say, look, there is there is a certain amount of skill to self-promotion. There is a certain amount of skill to, you know, to giving a reading or to giving an interview or setting up events and, and networking. And admit that those not everybody just has those skills naturally. Some people might, some people are very confident and you know, just right out of the gate, they're gonna change the world. I envy those people. I don't actually <laughs> feel like that. I've needed someone to kind of say, you know this is how you write a cover letter, or this is the right time that you should start approaching publishers. So I think it's it's good on the whole that we're, we're having these conversations, even if that leads to kind of some debates about the best ways forward. We don't have to go all in, but I do think we should keep talking about these changes. And yeah, so a word like ecology, maybe, you know, there's something in that we can think about if there are more positive life-affirming or planet-affirming ways that we can do business um, in poetry. I like the idea of a sort of an ecology of like a kind of an ocean, you know, who are the, who are the plankton in this ocean? Who are yeah. the bottom feeders? <laughs> who are the sharks? Yeah, that's, yeah. 
So what's your, what do you think about self-publishing? I have to ask you this, generally speaking, you know, that it used to be self-publishing before the internet, before the last 20 years, I suppose it was like you'd, you'd pay someone to, or you'd, you know, put your thing together, desktop publishing, and it would be a print thing. But of course, self-publishing actually is what anyone does when they post a poem on the internet now. Um, it doesn't have to go to be a print collection, but there used to be a big kind of taboo, didn't there, on that yeah. issue? Have you got any? I, I think that's changing. I mean, that's my own sense. I, I guess I would admit my my bias here because I I've self published a few things, and I and I run a press, a letter press, you know, very old fashioned kind of hand print and old Lovely. old technology yeah. at the University of York, and I'm printing a book of my own at the moment, and and I you know, I have control over everything and I can do all kinds of things that another publisher would never let me do, have different colors on the page and do uh-huh, uh-huh. things. And that feels like a whole work of art that I'm, I'm involved in, in doing that. And I, I think we're starting to see more of that. I think poets, especially now, again, it's cheap and the technology is there. There, you know, there's printing on demand. And I hope that becomes more of a trend. I think that is a positive thing. I think there will be things like you said, that kind of that general feeling prizes are usually a bit slower to kind of recognize self-publishing. So it feels like they're not legitimate quite in that way, but yeah. And I mean, the poetry library used to say, you know, we, we, we won't take your book if it's self-published, but yeah. a, a few years ago when Peter and I were involved in a, a publishing collective telltale press we we got them to accept our pamphlets so that felt like a little bit of a a bit of an acknowledgement uh, but I, i'm totally with you on this i think it's great and some of the yeah. things that are being done i mean i guess my overall feeling about it is that where it used to be quite a hard line between being published by a big major publisher and then if you didn't get into those then your only route was maybe self-publishing now we've got this whole spectrum of all these micro presses and and small presses and yeah. indie presses and it really blurs that line you know if you've got a, f- a friend who runs a tiny little press and you work closely with them to make a book like you want like is that self-publishing or it's 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 kind of in and that's that's a good thing. Perhaps we need some some new prizes for self-published books, maybe, or something like that, or handmade books. You know, there's there's that lovely coast to coast to coast little magazine that that Maria Isakova Bennett is doing. You know, out of out of Liverpool, yeah. there are some really nice things going on. Yeah. Almost feel that those sorts of things should be Almost, yeah. somehow being re- recognised, yeah. but. The resurgence of like zine culture and kind of like zine culture, well, you know, just pe- absolutely, yeah, yeah that's, totally. That's self pub, you know. And if you know, we it doesn't have to just be. I guess self publishing, if it implies a kind of narcissism and you're just going it alone, actually, it can be very communal. Yeah, and I think this has been helped by the Instagram type phenomenon. I think there are, there is an audience for Instagram poetry. Maybe we should just consider that there are lots of different audiences for yeah. poetry and. Um, try and get away from the value judgments i'm I'm trying to talk myself into this now i'm not yeah. sure i'm convinced well i don't if it helps like i i guess another way i think of it is that there's so many people making lots of different kinds of content online now i mean you think of performance poets and like brilliant videos and different platforms um that they're using like that doesn't you know we wouldn't call that self-producing we wouldn't kind of coordinate off in a particular yeah. category everybody's just doing this creative stuff so why why shouldn't they make books yeah you mentioned at the start this question about poets as entrepreneurs and Oh yeah. And I 
in some ways, I don't know if other people can see really obviously from the book that it's just something I'm really grappling with as well. And like one chapter will swing one way and be like, this is awful. We need to resist this language. And then the other one will be like, well, maybe there's um, <laughs> good sides of it. I t- is that something that you identify with? Is you written? Yeah. For me, you know, I come from a marketing background. So, but having said that, I hate humble bragging and stuff like that. You know, I'm rubbish at promoting myself in that way. We're now getting straight into poetry as a business mm. for an individual. And that, that's tricky. I think what you said before was about, right, you can be a poet and you can learn the necessary skills for helping to get your work out there and who knows, maybe even sell it. There's certainly this question of publishers, what they do for the individual poets varies a huge amount, doesn't it? Mm. And I've come to realize that, that you can be published by a poetry publisher and as soon as you get that deal, it's like, oh, wow, I'm going to be part of their stable. It's going to be fantastic. And you just, and the temptation for a lot of people, I think, is to sit back and say, right, they're going to do all the marketing and everything. It's going to be fantastic. And then you realize actually sometimes they do nothing, not one thing apart from produce the book. And it's totally up to you. And and so then, yeah, you have to be an entrepreneur, I think. Mm. What's your feeling? The thing I always keep reminding myself is like, at the end of the day, like, poetry is so much smaller in terms of its scale than than other kinds of content that's out there, right? I mean, it's sure. like even within publishing, compared to commercial fiction or even big popular literary fiction, it's just on a totally different level. And so the amount of money that publishers are working with, or the amount, of, certainly the amount of money that individual poets, you know, the concrete resources yeah. are totally different. It's a tricky one. Do you have students who feel they are going to make a career out of poetry, either writing it or teaching it or a bit of both? I think as soon as they do, I'm, uh, you know, I'm very wary and I want to, I want to make sure they understand, uh, yeah, just what we were saying, that, that, that it's not a thing very many people are able to make a full-time living at. But there are, it, the line between being a professional poet and a kind of amateur poet, I think that kind of distinction is is very blurry as well. And there are lots of different kinds of careers in the in the arts or in the creative industries where people are involved with poetry, probably more than there ever were before. And so that's that seems like a, a good thing. I want them to understand that, yeah, that in some ways the questions of getting published and developing their craft are very separate from those more practical questions of how you're going to make a living. Yeah. Poetry is like, it's a, there are so many worse things you could do with your time, right? And if anybody, I would never want to discourage anybody from, from dedicating however much of their life to, to thinking about language and thinking about readers and, and, and communicating with people and communities in that way. So I mean, I think there are so many poets now who are, who also work in marketing, which I find completely fascinating, like <laughs> what that crossover is and whether it's a day job or whether it's something that feeds into your ways of thinking about language. The people I know who've come from marketing background or who in it, who are in it, are wordsmiths in a way. You know, if you if you love language and you work with language, and if you write marketing copy, then you can write poetry. <laughs> That's the other way around. I could start saying things like. Well, as a marketer, you learn how to manipulate people's feelings. <laughs> but that's that's what poets do. That's what we yeah, we're, yeah. we're the master manipulators. Yeah, that's what we want. That's right. Yeah. That's true. We can get to do it without having to sell any damn crisps or anything. Yeah, just selling ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I did ask you what you're working on now. Is there another book in the pipeline or 
Or poetry, maybe. Yes, I am trying to, to print by hand a book of poetry. But yeah, somebody already suggested that this book will need a, an update for poetry during during COVID because everything I was talking oh, about seems to have yeah. changed again. Oh, but, not everything, not everything. Well, we'll see. I think the changes may have speeded up in some ways. So it's been fascinating talking with you, JT. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Take care. So, Mia Culpa, what JT was saying about working in marketing, we've both done that, haven't we? We're both guilty <laughs> of this. Yes, that's true. Did you do you think there was anything from working in marketing that genuinely translates into being a poet? Well, yes, and I, I wasn't joking when I said marketers learn how to manipulate people's feelings and behavior with words because that surely is. I mean, you're more of a an actual marketing copywriter than I am. So what's your take on that? I think the the best thing, because I, I write other stuff other than poetry, but the, the best thing about it was the idea of having to go to work every day, sit down and, and whatever mood you're in or however hungover you are or whatever, you've just got to produce stuff. And um, I think it's quite good for that sense of discipline because I always sit down every day and write stuff. It makes it less precious, you know, this idea that you have yeah. to wait for the moment and kind of wander around looking at daffodils and and so on. Actually, just get, get to your desk and get on with it is my motto. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I, that didn't occur to me in terms of my job as a marketer, I suppose. But I do relate to that in terms of, of other writing. When I was writing the blogging books, mm. I had a brief and I and just get on with it and not and not stress about every single word before I submitted it. And I think you've also talked about giving yourself a brief. Yeah, no, certainly with with a play or something that when I'm writing those, having a very clear idea of what you want to do. I mean, you don't know all the conversation and words and stuff that are going to happen inside it. But um, yeah. I like to have constraints as well. You know, I'm talking about plays now, but, you know, knowing that you have, say, three actors and what kind of space you you need to fill and what sort of time you're going to work to and what sort of genre you're going to do, all those kind of things nailed down before you start. That makes the job of writing uh, much easier. And maybe that's because of writing commercially, that knowing what, what the situation is beforehand is quite liberating. Yeah, yeah. I do like constraints. Maybe that's why I'm not so productive on the poetry front. Because I just think, well, the possibilities are endless. I could, I could do this. I could, I could riff off of this set of poems. I could develop this theme. There's so many things I could do. So I don't do any of them. Why do we need goals anyway? Why do we need deadlines? And, you know, <laughs> we should just write for the sake of, I mean, the, JT, we were talking about publishing. So what about, there are plenty of poets who have no interest in publishing. They are interested mm. in writing in the craft, in the, the activity itself, what they get from it. They might want to share their poetry, but some don't. And the idea of the whole publishing game does not appeal. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of instinctively don't want to treat poetry like business, you know, because it's something I love, you know, I, I and I love the fact that it's a, the poets I love most are, are not really seeking our attention. They're just kind of writing brilliantly. You've been able to read their work, therefore they must have shared it in some way. So if one doesn't want to share one's work, that's perfectly legitimate. But 
Mm. I think personally, I like, I like to see my poems imprint. That's just me, but mm. plenty of people are not interested in that. Isn't that true? I love seeing my work in print just because, I, you know, ultimately, even though poetry is quite a private art, we're trying to talk to other people. It was interesting what JT said about quoting Jeremy Paxman saying that, you know, poets are only talking to each other. His take on it was good as well about the, while it was quite an inflammatory thing to say, at least it created a debate, you know. And it was deliberately put out at the same time as the shortlist. So you might say more cynically, it was a marketing ploy, which is a part of creating excitement and and selling books. Because as soon Mm. as you enter into this publishing arena, you are entering to business, aren't you? I thought it was interesting, actually, what he highlighted the fact that poetry is such a small fish in the publishing pond, such a small fish. So why would a publisher put a great deal of resources behind poetry books and put that way sort of think well i can see i can see why not well i just think any publisher of poetry is a bit of a hero really because if you look at publishing more broadly the publishers have become so risk averse lately i mean they're not even funding their sort of middleweight writers as it were or, the, or funding development yeah it's extremely hard to be published by a mainstream publisher these days smaller presses have stepped into that breach you know, poetry presses are so badly funded and the returns are so poor. That's why, you know, there is this blurring of self-publishing and, you know, all the other kind of flowerings that JT was talking about, like, you know, Insta poets and all the rest of it. We have to be innovative. And I think that's quite exciting. And I quite like the idea of a different generation of poets having work that's published in a more graphical style and making it more accessible, you know, because a new generation of poets and poetry lovers has got to emerge from somewhere. And just because it's packaged differently doesn't make that bad. I agree. Small presses are the heroes. And I I need to just clarify a comment that I made in the interview, which was that some publishers won't do anything to help promote your book once it's published. Mm. I need to just say I'm not including in that live canon who published one of my pamphlets, and they basically have been amazing. I think it is quite unusual to have that amount of teamwork, if you like, between poet and publisher. I'm not just talking about my own experience. It's talking to poets who've had books published with various presses. And I think if one's going into this uh, wanting to have a collection published, it's good to know that in advance. Mm. If you know it in advance, as in this is teamwork – but you are a part of the team that's got to help put the book out there in order to promote sales, in order to help this tiny, tiny press who has taken yeah. a punt on publishing you. And that whole kind of ecosystem in the publishing world, I think, isn't articulated enough in my mind. It's like poets that uh, never subscribe to any magazines. You know, you have to, there may be financial reasons for that, but... yeah. There are a lot of people who, in poetry, who give their time for love and not money. Absolutely. And if you're able to feed back to that by buying books and, you know, showing them a bit of love back, the poetry environment, in the UK at least, is good to continue to thrive. I mean, you and I have been to those uh, small press fairs, haven't we? The poetry. Freeverse. Yeah. We've visited Freeverse several times and. You know, it's so exciting to walk around and see 
all the dedication and the innovation and the people just working so hard. It, it really is, yes. And a, a number of very small presses, they don't have a web presence. They don't do anything like that. And then you see what they're doing in the flesh. And as you say, they're labours of love and, some, and a lot of them are one-man or one-woman bands. And mm. it's incredible. And the energy in the room, the Poetry Book Fair, recommend it to anyone who's not been, who can get to London when the next one's on because you're right you would just walk around and it's it's just, it's just amazing it's fantastic and all the readings and stuff it yeah what i like about that stuff is you know somebody that writes and, and loves poetry is that suddenly you feel amongst your tribe you know the, the <laughs> it's right. okay you're not a weirdo <laughs> <laughs> but actually there's loads of other people that like doing this stuff too and uh, that's a nice feeling it it is and i think that again to go back to the idea of publishing or not publishing I think there are ways to be creative and do your own thing and bring out your own micro publication or do 20 limited edition, 20 handmade thingy bobs. Yeah. There's so many different ways of exposing your work to the world, I think, rather than hankering after the, what seem to be the big glamorous outlets. <laughs> says she, says she, who <laughs> not, not so many years ago, I used to sort of, dream of well now what font size would get my name fitting on the front of a faber pamphlet <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was shortlisted for a faber introductory <sighs> thing when, when i was about 30 <sighs> and i didn't quite make the cut and the whole process took about two years so of being rejected oh, so that, God. Was, that was very disappointing when I wasn't having oh. allowed all my kind of uncontrollable fantasies to uh, take over what a shame that would have been a whole different trajectory for PK yeah I'd like to think that the successful Peter Kinney would be in a bar drinking absinthe and kind of half dead by now <laughs> the... <laughs> I'm in robust health <laughs> or marking student essays well I think the uh, the gods laugh at ambitions of poets don't oh, they you know? yeah you and I, Peter, we co-founded a poets publishing collective, didn't we? Telltale Press. Yeah, we dipped our toes into the publishing world. I think our idea was that yes, we wanted to just take take back control. I can't say that. We just wanted to take some kind of responsibility rather than sort of sitting back and thinking, "Oh, I'd really nice to have a pamphlet published or whatever." And we wanted to have creative control i think in all ways didn't we over how the thing would look yeah and and we wanted to do it with other poets this was the um the dream that we would mm. all share all the jobs involved and we would all learn about all the things that we needed to do to publish our pamphlets we had this ideal didn't we of how we were going to do it about poets seizing the means of production wasn't it there was a kind of sort of marxist undertone that was that was the slogan <laughs> seizing the means of poetry production and and we also held a lot of readings didn't we i mean I was, i'm yeah. really proud of what we did in the four or five years that telltale press ran its course but there's something just about being proactive and not waiting i'm terrible at waiting for things to happen yes i'd much rather be positive and proactive about something uh, you're the same and Maybe that's why we're doing the podcast now. I think so. Yeah. I think if you come to something with positive energy, it just, it can only spread. We would recommend that to any groups of poets listening who are thinking, you know, get together or get together with someone like-minded at the similar stage of your poetry development. If you're feeling frustrated about not getting published, I think 
I think it's a really positive way of self-publishing and mm. the stigma of self-publishing. Well, JT seemed to feel that it was lessening, didn't he? That now that there's so many more ways to enter the publishing arena. I remember being published in Canada one time. The poems were wrapped up in scrolls and it was like a box of chocolates and you get you open the box <laughs> and there's all these scrolled poems. In there. I think they were called espresso publishing. Well, they were all kind of loose in the box, these scrolls. They're all laid on their sides, you know, like a like a load of flakes or something in a box. Not that that oh, happens, okay. I remember seeing that, and this was like donkeys years ago. But I'm thinking, why not be more innovative about the way that you reach people? You know, and that was like yeah. A, and there's this uh, what's that publisher that does kind of poetry booklets, almost like cards? Oh, um, yes, Candlestick Press. Is it? You think it- Candlestick Press? Yeah. I mean, just ways of reframing. I mean, the, the the work they feature is always really good work, you know, but to, it's just reframing how you present work to people. Why not do that? Why not think laterally and be creative? You know, your creativity shouldn't just, just stay on the page. No. Talking about innovative forms, I really enjoyed that Anne Carson book, Knox. Did you ever see that oh, yeah. in its form? No, I didn't. It's like, a, a long, it's like a prose poem, isn't it? Is... I'm thinking more of the um the format. So it's it comes in a in a box. I mean it's the size oh, of yeah. a concise English dictionary. It's a big box. And you open wow. it up and the whole book, if you like, is actually a concertina. So it concertinas out. So instead of turning the page, you just open up the concertina a bit more. You put it out and then you have to put the bits you've read to the side and it becomes like this slinky. Oh, nice. In some ways it's unwieldy and it's a bit extreme, but I really Mm. enjoyed it. I liked the form and I liked the idea of it, that it unfolded. I think the whole thing was a facsimile of what was originally a scrapbook. Oh, cool, yeah. There were all kinds of things about it that intrigued me and Mm. they were all to do with the form, Um, but the poetry was still powerful and good and interesting. You wanted to keep reading. I'd love to produce something like that. Completely uncommercial and ridiculous, yeah. but but lovely. And Carson gets away with it. Robin, let's finish with a poem, something uplifting and cheerful. Have you got something up your sleeve? <laughs> something uplifting and cheerful. Well, I was thinking of poems to do with publishing as in is ah. there some kind of ars poetica of the publishing side of things is there a, i can't think of any poem like that where where have you got this where is this volume <laughs> it's not strictly speaking to do with publishing but it is it's about poetry competitions which isn't oh, far off the okay. mark is it and it's very mm. short and this poem was in the north and it's by meg cox meg has been widely published and whenever i see her work invariably it makes me smile but I mustn't make it sound like she only writes funny poems that's not that's not true at all but I know she does perform as well so this is probably one of those she whips out for a for a bit of a laugh at a reading Mm. it's called my friend the prize-winning poet of course I had to say I was delighted for her in fact be the first of us to say it I didn't think it necessary to mention that I too had entered the competition Of course, I smiled and smiled and said I loved one particular line in her winning poem. The last is a pretty safe bet, but I hadn't actually read it. 
and I won't be fucking reading it either. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies for no no warning of uh, swearage. Was that the end of the poem? That was brilliant. Weirdly, I I don't think there's anybody writing poetry in the country that can't identify with that poem. (laughs) And I love the way it slipped into the North. You know, you're reading the North, a fine publication, and suddenly this poem kind of comes in and makes you laugh out loud over your cup of tea I, I, I love that Maid Cox well done mate. <laughs>